all came about because you have electrons and a positive background confined in two dimensions and interactions between them, and a whole host of complex emergent phenomena happens. Um, and as I started to dig into biology, we're dealing with, you know, on some level, a far more vast complex system, and people were just trying to use their empirical minds to understand it. They observe it in their minds, they, they go, oh, I understand this pathway, and I thought, okay, this is a field that really does need mathematics. This is Tectonics, the podcast focused on the people and passion at the intersection of technology and health. A woman always ahead of her time, Aya Khalil was captivated by Stephen Hawking as a child and by AI when others were infatuated with WebVan. Today, we hope Aya will preview the future of AI in health and explain how her company, GNS Health, hopes to deliver it. This is Tectonics. I'm Lisa Sunin. And I'm David Shaywitz. And today's episode is brought to you by GE Ventures. GE Ventures. Multiple paths to big impact. So, David, let me first start by saying congratulations on your new gig. You've now officially joined the dark side as a VC. Thank uh, you. What do you think about uh, – so coming to J.P. Morgan as a VC instead of as an entrepreneur, what was the difference? Um, uh I, th- I think probably everybody has their own type of, J- of a JPM. You know, it's like one big meeting, and everyone. You know, if you're a payer, it's different. If you're from where, from all your angles, everyone has it different. Um, I thought it was a really interesting meeting. I thought that the, um, you know, maybe coming at it from li- as a life science VC but with a real interest in um, pursuing um, interesting tech stuff. I uh, I kind of th- had two takeaways. One was I thought there was an unbelievable time someone described as science fiction come to life on sort of the biological technology side in terms of, you know, cell therapies, gene therapies, gene editing. I mean, these are things that were, would have been fantastical a couple of years ago. I mean, you would have almost been like laughed at or saying, oh, we have this crazy idea for this. And now everyone's trying to acquire, many people are trying to acquire the kind of capabilities or at least seriously discussing them. On the tech side, however, I thought there was this, this almost incredible discrepancy between the senior level conversation of a C-suite where people were sort of like, you know, at, at some places were like acknowledging data, acknowledging, you know, the, the new methodologies, and then the way drugs are inside of comp- most companies, most biopharmers are actually discovered, which hasn't evolved very much, which, which hasn't yet incorporated some of these technologies. What was your takeaway from JPM at a high level? Well, it's interesting because I agree with you that there's this um, fantastical science uh, thing going on and clearly a commitment of pharma to integrate technology in a way that they never had before. But I was also struck by almost the very opposite thing, which was there was a hell of a lot of talk about social determinants of health in a way that I haven't heard before. So I think it's you know completely bifurcated conversation, right? So yeah, there's all the science, but if you can't get people to eat properly because they don't have food or you can't get them to their doctor's appointment because they don't have transportation, you know, that's fundamental and, and also needs to be addressed. So I've, I'm kind of encouraged by that. I think if you could combine the humanity side with the science side, you might actually get somewhere someday. All right. Well, that sounds very, very encouraging. We are delighted today to be joined by someone who I'm sure also had a, a extremely busy JPM, Aya Khalil. Welcome to the show today, Aya, and thank you so much for joining us. <laughs> it is great to be here for sure. Aya is flat out one of the coolest people I know and has a fascinating life story. You were born, (laughs) it's true, you know it. Uh, You were born, as I recall, in Seattle, but then moved to Florida where your dad was completing, I think, his uh, PCHEM PhD. And then at age five, you moved to Libya where your folks were from. And you stayed there for the next five years before returning for good this time to the U.S. and Seattle in particular. I have to think all that moving around would be incredibly disorienting. What was it like when you returned to the U.S. at age of 11? and were plopped into middle school? Yeah. 
Um, well, the first thing is you notice that you're different. <laughs> you first think that um, you're, you know, you're the same because you were born. I was born in the United States, and I spoke English uh, very well. But coming back, I realized I was behind um, my schoolmates by a number of years. I had to learn how to read and write in English because I, um, at that point, spoke Arabic fluently, write and write in Arabic fluently. Um, and it was, you know, it was the start of a of a lifetime of learning other people's languages. <laughs> And I think that was, that was a good experience because it's also what I had to do later in my career when I went from physics to biology. Did people assume you were smart or did they assume because you were different you were not smart? Oh, very good question. Um, you know, I don't know what they assumed and probably because I've never been one to worry about what other people thought. <laughs> I sort of just go into whatever environment popped in and kind of work my way through. The one advantage that I did have is my math skills were far superior to everybody there um, because I would say that when you get educated abroad, um, there's a strong emphasis on being really good in mathematics and the sciences. Um, and there definitely was a, a gap there between what, how far I had gotten in math and science versus uh, the American kids that I studied with at the time. Wow. That is an interesting and sad commentary on uh, well, American but education. I mean, yeah, but on, well, that on the other <laughs> hand, I mean, there's some self-selectivity. Self I mean, it's not like a representative, you know, like well, some Not random, by age 11. Yeah. Well, but it's not some random person. It's like, you know, <laughs> dad's getting a you know, PhD in physical chemistry. Fair enough. So, um, all right, so you say you spent a lot of time um, in your head and were reading Stephen Hawking's when most of us were reading Mad Magazine. How did that happen? Right. Well, um, I, I don't know why, but I had this uh, fascination with time and the nature of time. I didn't quite fundamentally understand it. Um, and, uh, and so I, I just wanted to know, and I would obsess about the topic and this whole concept of, you know, is time finite? What's it, what, what does it mean for us to um, exist in a universe where there's no sort of end to it? How did it all begin? Um, and to try to understand it, <laughs> found a, a title of, you know, Brief History of Time by Stephen Hawking, so I started reading that, and that's actually what drove uh, my desire to study physics, was really trying to, uh, and wanting to understand fundamentally the nature of time itself, um, and that's why I decided to major it in college. That's uh, really interesting. What was it about time that was so fascinating to you? What was the thing that most drove you to wonder? Yeah, I think it's um, the, the nature of it where, you know, you, you, it was all based on perception, right? Like a day could go by and you wouldn't even necessarily notice it if you hadn't sort of tracked it in your head. Like this idea that how our mind perceived it, a minute versus a day uh, versus, you know, a year, is something that we're just not very good at really um, uh, in a phenomenological way capturing it and understanding it. Um, and, and then the sort of this concept of infinite time and what it meant for the universe to either be finite in its lifetime or not would, would just sort of wrangle in my head. And as I started to read books in physics, you know, there was this concept where time and space were intertwined, but in a way, even physicists hadn't captured what it really meant. And we're still debating that topic today. Wow. It's just, just, can you imagine being at that place when you're in like middle school, high school, like the, having those sort of thoughts? Um, it's, mm. it's, it's so striking. Now, what, the other thing you were saying uh, to me, Aya, was that um, you obviously were incredibly smart, but you said you weren't a particularly, you know, a, an amazing student, but obviously good enough to get into the very yeah. competitive University of Washington, whereas you said you studied physics. Was it kind of um, bold or brave to go into an incredibly demanding domain like physics with 
um, you know, you know, we sort of like you, you looked at your experience in high school and we're sort of like, well, I'm interested in these things. But, you know, do you ever wonder, am I smart enough to do it? How do you sort of have the, the confidence? Because yeah. it strikes me. I mean, I remember when I was seeing the physics, people were doing math and physics in college. And we're like, oh, my God, these people are like from a different planet. Right. Like, how do you decide you're in that you're in that crowd? Yeah, well, it did help that while I while I was in high school, I, I did do well in physics itself as a topic. Um, and I think maybe that's partly what gave me the confidence. But honestly, I, I don't know. There's something about um, the way that I look at the world, and I don't sort of worry about what, what I can and can't do. I just think about what I want to do next, and I just go for it. Um, and that's kind of been the trajectory of my life in general. Um, and so maybe where most people would have been scared to tackle a difficult topic, I thought, this is difficult. I really want to understand it, so I'm going to do it. Um, and I should have known better, but I did it. Wow, that's <laughs> awesome. I mean, it's funny. I totally see you as like the math genius in like the TV show Numbers, <laughs> if, you ever, uh, if you ever remember that. Math is more than formulas and equations. It's logic. Math is more than formulas and equations. It's rationality. It's using your mind to solve the biggest mysteries we know. Um, and so, like, you know, in, in college, you're saying, um, uh, after college, you, you know, did a PhD, not just in physics, but theoretical physics at Cornell. But then when you entered your final year of that in 1999, you started, uh, to, I think, to think about uh, career options. And as you pointed out, this was a uh, the time where um, Wall Street discovered physics and everyone was, everyone discovered dot-coms. Yeah. Um, uh, what sort of things did you see your classmates pursuing during this time? A lot of folks, because it was really hard to get um, uh, academic postings as a theoretical physicist, there weren't that many positions. So a lot of them were going into Wall Street and management consulting. Um, and that just did not appeal to me. It felt like you know I'd gone through all this training to really understand how I could use math um, along with our understanding of the physical sciences to make you know predictions about the world that were... Um, and some level, I mean, you think about it, it's really transformative that you could even do this and that I was going to somehow use it to predict, you know, stocks on Wall Street. <laughs> and um, so I, I, I just didn't feel right that that was for me. Um, and that's when I ran into Colin Hill, who had been using statistical physics approaches in biology. And I thought, OK, that's really fascinating and interesting. That's what I'd like to do. Had you spent any time thinking about biology before? No. So kind of a similar <laughs> thing where I didn't know any biology. So you and, just, and just, just woke up one day and said, biology, what the hell am I as well? Yeah, well, <laughs> well yeah, right, exactly. Biology is it. It's the coolest thing ever, even though nobody was doing it in my field. Um, no, what, what the, the insight was this. So I had been working on these models of two-dimensional electron gases. So when you think about electron gases living in three dimensions, you could... Um, oh, totally. I was doing that too. <laughs> Probably just creating them, Lisa. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it have all sorts of properties around whether they become superconducting, um, at what point do they go through a phase transition. Well, it gets even more interesting when you confine them to two dimensions. Um, so when you confine them to two dimensions, all sorts of different order states can happen, and they can even become superconducting just by confining them to a two-dimensional space. But this was all came about because you have electrons in a positive background confined in two dimensions and interactions between them, and a whole host of complex emergent phenomena happens. Um, and as I started to dig into biology, we're dealing with, uh, you know, on some level, a far more vast complex system, and people were just trying to use their empirical minds to understand it. They observe it in their minds. They, they go, oh, I understand this pathway. And I thought, 
okay, this is a field that really does need mathematics. And if we could apply now, in the same way we do in physics, sort of observation with math to make quantitative predictions, you know, perhaps we can get at really understanding fundamentally why a cell becomes cancerous and start to target it. Um, so it was just that observation that we were dealing with a far more complex system, and yet people weren't using, um, you know, math and equations and, and, and quantitative approaches to understanding it. So what was the initial approach that you guys had to uh, starting your business? What was sort of your business model, and then um, how did that start to evolve? Could anybody understand it? I mean, because I think 20 years ago when this was going on, your construct of applying math to biology and all that was pretty uh, still stuck on the theoretical, not not on the practical commercial side. Yeah. As opposed to now. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Yeah, as opposed to now. Oh, um, <laughs> very good observation. So, um, you know, when we started, we used to call this systems biology, and um, that's a whole field, and people still use that that term. And I still like to call it that, by the way. I was like, we call it big data day, but I still call it systems biology. Um, and, you know, the idea was that we would go in and catalog all of the known components of the system, all the proteins, all the genes, mRNA, um, you know, whatever we knew at the time. At the time, we didn't even know about microRNA, by the way. Uh, and we would model them mathematically. We would create this, this set of differential equations um, and then fit those equations to data and then be able to use, make predictions about, um, you know, when a pathway got dysregulated, whether a cell would now um, proliferate uncontrollably and we could be able to find these new targets. But it was all based on building models from what we knew and then fitting them to data. And um, as we did that, one of the first glaring things, because we sat down, um, at this point, Colin, myself, and the company, and built the largest model of a cancer cell to, that we could ever sort of uh, cobble together based on known literature, we realized there was a lot of missing pieces and a lot of missing components of the biology that people didn't know about. But initially, we thought we could build these models uh, and we could make these predictions. And so our initial business plan was build the models and use it to make predictions about combination targets that you could go after, right? So what was your idea then? Who was going to be your customer? And what was the business model yeah. that you conceived of originally? So originally it was going to be pharmaceutical companies. And this was now, you know, uh, we were hearing stories about Millennium <laughs> coming up with these novel targets and, and becoming, uh, you know, big companies just based on that insight. So we thought we could sell them insights about what combination targets to go after. Not just targeting one gene at a time, but two genes at a time, and that would be more potent. And we would sell those insights to the millennials of the world. And by the way, just a quick aside here, kind of for Lee's sake as well. What was so fascinating with the millennium story is they got paid a ton of money to, you know, to do all this kind of you know, gene expression analysis and stuff. And meanwhile, they actually took the proceeds or some of the proceeds and went out and actually bought a company, a, uh, a product company called Leukocyte. And even within that company, they bought it for one drug called Campath. But actually, the real, the, the sort of the the thing that was. Uh, game-changing was this other drug called Velcade that at the time they bought Leukocyte didn't even realize they had in the, uh, they, they, that they sort of uh, had in the pipeline. So it was an example of being, you know, sort of an analytics being in a sense or, you know, uh, being funded, buying a product company and then getting something they didn't even realize Well, was I was there. actually going to ask about that because I think as I see today, even still, a lot of the companies that are focused on platforms for discovery in the end, they have to become drug companies, product companies, because that's where the valuation opportunity is. Are you guys, I mean, are you a platform for discovery? What exactly is the business at this point now? Yeah. So let me just um, explain just a little bit what we evolved to, because it will help um, you understand what, 
what we ended up doing as a business model today. They had this original idea that we'd build these models of the cells from the ground up and come up with targeted insights that we'd then sell. Um, that there's the whole question of the business model that can you really sell insights, which is a really good question. And the second piece was, could you actually you know, build models of biology from what we knew? <laughs> and long story short, what we discovered is you could not. Um, there was just too many missing pieces out there, too many gaps in our biology. Um, and as you just alluded to, just selling insights, that's a, that's a really hard way to to, to, that's a really hard business model to pull off. But so we focused our energy into building a platform and a capability that would learn the biological mechanisms, pathways, um, networks directly from data in a probabilistic way. Um, and so now it's applying machine learning combined with approaches that go beyond what people do today, which is correlation analysis, and learns causality from data, which is a much more powerful way of doing machine learning and AI. Um, and it learns causality from all kinds of data. So we went beyond genomic and gene expression data to EMR records, claims records, um, you know, behavioral records, social determinant of health data, any kind of sort of data you can put at it, it can learn those causal mechanisms underlying the data. And what we commercialize today is that platform. The, we call it REF. It stands for reverse engineering. Reverse engineering from the data, the the biology, the causality that underlies it, and then it allows you to run simulations so you can ask what-if questions. And we're using the platform. Yeah, so drug companies can license it to, to pharma. So we now today license it to... For the drug companies? Yep. Still pharma? You have two different types of customers, though, right? You were saying you sort of have payer customers in one context, and then you have... Um, so do you want to go maybe through, in each of those models, who... like? What are people coming to you with, and then what do you deliver? Yeah, so um, our, our two or three main buckets of, of verticals and clients that we um, work with today now are health plans. So health plans um, have this issue of, you know, they have only so much money to spend on their populations, right? Um, and they need to figure out where best to spend their resources that would lead to optimizing outcomes on their members and on their patients. So we take in the data exhaust that they generate, uh, from claims records to medical labs to EMR records, and we learn computer algorithms that on a member-by-member, person-by-person basis predicts the optimal set of interventions that you should give that individual. And what do you do with that? Because I think, I think the health plans, by and large, can receive these lists of people who need interventions, and then they don't know what the hell to do with it. I mean, they have some care managers, but the care managers are used to more focusing on gaps in care. Did somebody take their meds or not? not in doing clinical, you know, deep clinical intervention. And, oh, by the way, most of them are not, you know, uh, financially aligned with the provider systems they're using to deliver these things. So how, how does that all work? Yeah. So we, we focus on problems where they have set up the appropriate care management intervention programs for a given disease area, right, um, where they may have nurses deployed on it or combinations of uh, nurses and other kinds of care management uh, programs that they're going to deliver. Um, and so within that, then, we model the whole system. So we're actually able to model out mathematically and computationally, given the intervention resources that you have, along with all of the measures and data that we just described and our ability to model that, matching those interventions to improve those costs and outcomes. So yes, uh, not all health plans have um, you know, uh, the appropriate intervention programs, but a lot of them are building that out. And we can actually take now what they've built and optimize around that. 
And then on the uh, life science biopharma side, um, what is an example of the problem people are coming to you with and then the, the, what, you, what you give them back? Yeah. So um, on the pharma side, a lot of drugs, by the time they um, get into phase two, there's this big question of who they're really going to work for, right, um, and optimizing that and identifying the biomarkers that would tell you who the responders and non-responders are. And the last few years, many pharma companies now are investing in collecting, collecting deep genomic and molecular data along with the deep clinical data they already collect. And so we can take that data and learn causal models that predict how the drug interacts with the pathways that it impacts and how it impacts clinical phenotype. And we can tell you what are the markers. Well, is there really enough data at, say, at the phase two, phase one, phase two level, even if people do a reasonably good job of collecting some different data types, and even if it's collected um, responsibly, which can be, or not really responsibly, but but rigorously, which is a a real issue, uh, you know, the sort of the quality of data collection, um, is there enough looking at a handful of patients to even discern what is a biomarker for response or not response based on a handful of patients who are dosed in a um, early phase study? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you're, if you're doing your biomarker discovery based on just correlation analysis, there will never be enough data, okay? Uh, because you're essentially doing a p-value calculation, right? And you're always going to get killed with multiple hypothesis testing. But the way that we do our learning by discerning the causal mechanisms, you can actually learn that, um, and you're doing it on multimodal data, right? So you're trying to come up with explainers that say, given your genotype, interacting with a drug term or treatment that can then influence a molecular level, that can then influence a phenotype, you can actually sort out those causal associations. And we built REFs so that it could learn with as little as, this was actually our our first sort of uh, mindset when we built this is we envisioned a world where we would need to learn from small sample sets and be able to learn what signals exist in the data with as little as 50 patients. Uh, But we can take in obviously hundreds and then tens of thousands of patients when we apply this at the the health plan level. So the way you sort of reduce, I'm not using the right term, I'm sure, degrees of freedom, but is by the sort of the, the mandating sort of the causal relationships. Is there any danger that it's, you know, by making a, and we talk about this with Daphne Kohler as well, is that, you know, how, how you balance, uh, on the one hand, you know, sort of leveraging biology and, and sort of what's known about causality with the idea that maybe a lot of that stuff isn't correct. I mean, um, I, we were just hearing, uh, I was reading something just the other day, um, I know Venter was speaking at, a, at actually, um, at a J.P. Morgan. He was saying, oh, most of the stuff that's published in papers about genetics is inaccurate. Most of the stuff isn't true. And so the point is, if there's a certain amount that you're assuming about what causes what or what the relationships are, and that's not accurate, is that going to kind of get you in more trouble than if you just looked at the data in a sort of a less and a more of a hypothesis-free fashion? Yeah, we are looking at it in a hypothesis-free fashion. So we assume that causality exists, but we don't assume what the causal mechanism is. We actually let the data tell us. Um, and in addition to that, we also try to learn what we can learn from the data. In other words, if the sample size is too small, the answer is is that it's too small to reserve to to be able to resolve the causality. Uh, but if we have enough patients and enough of the right measurements, then we can tell you if we can resolve it and what our uncertainty is around it. So a lot of you know um, biologists <laughs> fundamentally have a fear of these approaches because they are worried about overfitting the data. But you can account for these things and you can account for 
uncertainty in your data and uncertainty in what you're learning. And I think this is one of the key things with these approaches is figuring out what we can learn from data, where the gaps are, and where we need to double down to either collect more patients or more measures. But the key is we're learning causality in a hypothesis-free way, but we're mathematically assuming that causality exists, and we're just letting the data tell us what the orientation of these nodes relative to each other so we can tease it out. So 20 years ago or 18 years ago, whatever, when you started this business, this was a pretty novel thing. And now it's like everybody and their brother is talking AI and machine learning and, yeah. you know, drug discovery. And I mean, it's like, you know, you can't go to Starbucks without hearing over here in a conversation about this. Um, what how do you keep yourselves distinguished from the pack when it's, uh, you know, frankly, becoming so loud, you can't even hear it anymore? Right, right. Now, very good question. So there's, there's I'd say, two things. Uh, the first is the type of machine learning that, that we're doing around causal machine learning is unique. We have the pioneering patent um, around causal machine learning that we got in 2006. Um, so we both <clears throat> have IT protection, but we're also doing a form of, cause, of machine learning that others aren't doing. IBM is not doing this. The deep learning approaches is not that. It's a, uh, a nested neural net. It doesn't assume a causal structure. Um, but the second is really staying ahead and getting at real results that people care about. So we just announced um, a result around work that we did in collaboration and are still doing with the Multiple Myeloma Research Foundation, where we took in a registry data set that they'd collected on their patients, newly diagnosed patients that over time either respond to treatment or don't. Um, and they collected whole genome data along with molecular profiles and really rich amazing clinical phenotypic data, and we were able to learn causal models that would predict um, who the non-responders are to stem cell therapy and what are the drivers of that. And out of that came this um, uh, uh, gene called CHECK1, where levels of CHECK1 uh, could predict responders and non-responders. And then we took that, having made that discovery, um, and made it based on this, these causal models that say this is a causal driver for the endpoint and went and validated that out of cohort with data Farber and actually showed that that levels of that gene could distinguish responders from non-responders. That's a really impactful result because we're saying that patients, as they present, we could potentially use these markers to identify who would benefit. Um, and now, you know, it's still early. We're going to go through the exercise of prospective validation. But one of the key things is, is that we're really um, – committed to partnering with clinicians to solve these deep scientific questions and then getting them all the way through the validation so that they, um, you know, go through all the stringent measures of this. Yeah. So I, I heard your answer, and I, it makes a lot of sense um, if you're a scientist. But if you're talking yeah. to a payer and you talk about layers of neural networks, they're going to hear, you know, like that famous Farside cartoon, you know, blah, 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 ginger. You know, they're not going to understand, by and large, <laughs> what in the hell yeah. that means and why that's distinguishing. How do you turn it into actual ROI for them? How is it a business, right? That's right. Yeah, yeah. So on the payer, payer side, so what the, I think what I just described, as you said, from, from scientists and we're going to clinicians and pharmaceutical companies, they get that, right? We're able to find these causal markers that um, distinguish who would benefit from something like stem cell therapy, validate it, and then it's something they can think about using it in clinical practice. Uh, but as you said, going to payers, <clears throat> it's all about the numbers. Um, so the first is that we prove out that the algorithms actually predict what they say they're going to predict. So whether it's out of sample data sets that they have or out of cohort data sets. And then the second is in the implementation. So these algorithms do get implemented and they get applied to make these predictions. And then once the interventions are delivered, we get more data and we feed that back in. 
and over time we're able to demonstrate ROI. But I, aren't you still selling insights? Like I thought at the very beginning you said well, one of your first recognitions was you can't have a bit. It's hard to have a business where you're selling insights, and it seems like you're still selling insights. So where, where, what have I missed? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, we tied those insights to economic value. That's really the key thing that we that we were able to do. Is it's not just about uh, showing the um, uh, clinical value, but also to the economics, and then tying it into the data that they collect continuously that they need to make decisions. So does your pay change with production of, of savings? Do you take risk? Yeah, so on the we, we didn't work, right, so when we started, we didn't work with payers. Um, and so we developed this whole business model around working with payers, and we get paid on the value of those insights, essentially, on a PMPM type basis. So we can calculate out Mm-hmm. what the benefit is of using these algorithms to do the intervention matching, and we can get paid on that value. And then that value also gets proven out as you apply the algorithms. On the pharma side... Have you done yeah. studies? Have you done studies with the payers oh, yeah. to prove yeah, no. so we, that we that savings is... we published this work with that. Now you can look it up where we're able to build algorithms that would predict out um, and identify their members who are at risk for metabolic syndrome and match them to an intervention program. And they've deployed that now prospectively, and we're able to measure ROI with that. Um, but on the pharmaceutical side, what, what we did decide is that we weren't um, going after selling insights to pharma. We're going to enable pharma, and we're going to enable them with the most powerful tools that can actually deliver the science. Uh, but where they are, in a way, in control of the science and can use it as part of their workflows to advance the science however they need it to. So, okay. Um, so I wanted to take a um, uh, just a, and we only have like a minute or two left, but there's a, one a topic that I thought was just too interesting not to make sure. You know, I really wanted to get to sure. it. So um, we've spoken about this, and I think maybe has, unfortunately, some particular saliency now. And this is your experience as a Muslim American. And to be clear, as a Muslim American technology entrepreneur, you told me that your experiences yeah. were profoundly different pre and post 9-11. And I just didn't know if you could just talk a little bit about that for our listeners. Yeah. Um, so, you know, pre-9-11, uh, I would say that most folks didn't really understand or know um, uh, many Arabs or many Muslims in general. Um, and, uh, the, and most of my time when I would run into someone, they either knew about the culture um, and, you know, were very sort of generally friendly, and if they didn't know what they knew, may have been reflected by, it's like some movie they watched, you know, Lawrence of Arabia, and they'd ask me, like, have I ever ridden a camel? Yep. Um, <laughs> I've ridden <laughs> a camel. Post my... <laughs> exactly. And I'm from New um, Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Um, but I'd say post 9-11, you know, the media um, started to, you know, put out a lot of stories that in some ways were, it really felt very negative to me. Um, and at this time I was trying to think age-wise, I, I can't recall now. <laughs> you're saying you were at the <laughs> beginning of GN, age. right at the beginning of your GNS experience, you were saying. It, it was right at the beginning of GNS experience. And at, to the point that I got rid of my television, could not watch TV anymore. I just felt there was just a lot of, it, it was in the media, not even necessarily reflected within the people. Um, and, uh, but, you know, I think the thing that, kind of gave me hope, and I, I told the stories. We were um, on vacation in Mexico with my family uh, and when 9-11 happened. So 9-11 is happening, and we're, we're abroad. Uh, I have an American passport, and my parents, I believe, had just received their American citizenship. And I thought, I wonder how we're going to be welcomed back in my country <laughs> as Arabs and Muslims. I actually was not sure. Um, 
and we, you know, and I went back to GNS, which is on the East Coast. My family lives on the West Coast. And then I called them, like, hey, you know, how did it go? And, um, you know, and they said, the, the officer welcomed my parents in. They said, welcome back. And at, at the time, um, family friends of ours, American friends of ours, were calling us and asking if we were okay. People were asking me if I was okay. And that's when I realized that, yeah, there might be all of these negative stereotypes propagated in the media, and, and they are horrible to look at. It's, it's sort of like, that's not me. Who are you talking about? Um, but in the end, like, people were still good, and we were, you know, we still felt welcome in our country. And that, that still means, uh, meant a lot to me then. It still does today. Interesting. You know, I, I you know, as David said, it's in, we're in such an interesting time. Uh, so to speak, interesting and not necessarily the good sense of the word. And I, you know, I know how difficult it is for entrepreneurs who don't look like they're right out of, you know, frat party central casting to get funded. And your company is uh, particularly diverse. You have an African-American CEO, you, you know, as a Muslim American. Has that been a challenge for you to raise funding for the company? Um, It was in the early days because people didn't understand what we did. Um, But as we started to show progress and develop the technology, it's gotten easier and easier. I don't think either Colin or myself have felt in our biotech life sciences circle felt um, discriminated against. Um, And I do think that the biotech life sciences field is somewhat special. Um, It's, you know, a lot of people who still have to do real hard science and, uh, and the science is what dictates, you know, it's, it's what sets the standards. It's not what what you look like or who you are, where you come from. Not to say that these things don't happen. um, But at least, you know, we haven't sort of felt the, the kind of negativity that I've heard others have felt in areas outside of uh, outside of the life sciences. Wow, I think it's uh, you're you're really just one of the, always um, one of the most positive folk people I know, and it's it's really nice to hear mm-hmm. that even under really trying times, um, there's so much. Um, you know, goodness and positivity that you're experiencing. Um, we're so grateful that you joined us on the show today and really wish you uh, and, uh, and and the company and your colleagues the very best of luck. Thanks, Aya. That was great. I really uh, enjoyed meeting you, even if uh, long distance. Look forward to connecting in the future. Yeah, thank you both. This was a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, it's, it's 2018 and our approach at GNS is just keep pushing the boundaries because in the end, kind of patients are going to benefit and we're all going to benefit. Well, that was uh, enjoyable talking to her. I, I don't, I don't know Aya, and I hadn't, I hadn't heard uh, much about her before. Though I do, I do know her colleague Colin, and I didn't really fully appreciate what they were doing over there. So it was interesting to hear about it, but it's, and that they've been doing it for twenty years. Um, you seemed um, cautious about their business model. What are you, what are you, what were you, what were you really thinking, Lisa? <laughs> well, you know what I'm thinking is that there's a lot of companies claiming to do this stuff right now, right? And um, the question I have is. You know, what is it actually going to produce in the end? I think it has the propensity to produce a lot. But I, whether companies are really ready to implement this, uh, I don't know. And I think, you know, the companies that like this, that don't take it all the way with services wraparounds, I think have more of a challenge because I think the recipients, the customers, have a hard time adopting and using the technologies. Yeah, someone should write about implementation. <laughs> <laughs> Make a note of that. Yeah, I, I think you did recently, David, oh, that's in Forbes. right, that's I right. All right. Um, well, please remember to rate us on iTunes, leave a comment, and help others discover the show. And as noted, you can follow David's writing at Forbes. And you can follow the inimitable Lisa Sunin at VentureValkyrie.com. We're grateful to our sponsor, GE Ventures. GE Ventures, multiple past, big impact. Tectonics is produced by Connected Social Media and recorded in Scenic Tectonic Studio B in Mill Valley, California. Hasta la vista. 